Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And I'm here once again with my fabulous pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine at ANU. And Sharon, we are, of course, recording remotely because the uh, pandemic that just keeps on giving and some of us are travelling again. It's quite an exciting time. Um, I've been attending conferences in different parts of, of Australia and this week I'm in Melbourne for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians meeting that's coming up this week. And which I'm very much looking forward to, talking about climate change and health. So last week's episode was live and we actually got to see each other. And for those who haven't seen the picture of Sharon's shoes, please do check that out on Twitter. What were your thoughts about last week's live event with Democracy Sausage? I was pretty excited to be able to wear my quite spectacular, if I do say so myself, boots in public. They really are. Um, but my footwear aside, <laughs> it was fantastic to be um, to be together on the stage, to be together with, with Nick Biddle and Mark Kenny and with a fantastic and incredibly engaged group of people in the audience. It was a very cold and wintry and rainy Canberra night, but we had a fantastic turnout for that pod. And, and Anna Greta, I thought the conversation was, was just terrific. Um, mm. And one of the things that struck me, particularly talking to people that came along um, afterwards, was just how engaged people are and how thirsty people are for deep and informed policy discussions. You know, there mm. really is such an appetite for that. No, for for those who wonder, our, our Australian population cares. It's it's not just in the Canberra bubble; it's national. Uh, we know that from the work that's done here at ANU, asking people what they think about what's going on in the world at the moment. Uh, but people really do care about the major challenges that we have, and they're very much interested in the policy solutions. Um, and I think one of the themes that really emerged from the discussion last week was how we can improve our politics to the point where policy change is actually achievable. 
So for those who are interested and who might enjoy uh, a live presentation of a podcast, we should shout out to Democracy Sausage. Mark, Kenny and the team will be hosting one final Democracy Sausage live show next week on Wednesday the 18th of May in the final week of the election campaign here in Australia. There'll be refreshments and actual Democracy Sausages will be served from 5.30pm with the show starting at 6.30. It will be held at ANU. So you'll find details on the website. We'll leave a link in the show notes. I think that's going to be a, a great conversation. I know that First Life Democracy Sausage was terrific. You know, the joint Policy Forum Pod Democracy Sausage episode was was really exciting and, and such a fantastic conversation. So I'd really encourage people to, to go along to that final live Democracy Sausage Pod just before the election. Anna Greta, I'm going to miss it, sadly. You were saying we're just starting to travel and I'm going to be in um, in Northern Victoria next week. So I won't be able to get to that live live pod but um, I will be talking with communities about a new project we're starting on childhood poverty and how we how we address the the structural causes so that's something I'll be talking on the pod a lot about over the next couple of years I think Um, but I'm sad to be missing the, the episode but very exciting to be getting this research underway. Fabulous and important research, but I will be live tweeting. I will be there and I will try and keep abreast of the discussion so that you can catch up with bits of it at the time, Sharon. (laughs) I expect a blow-by-blow account. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, always, yep. So listeners, Policy Forum Pod is produced here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and we offer a range of degree programs and short courses ranging from public policy to climate change to international development. We have a spectacular group of uh, faculty members who, who teach those courses and we have such amazing students. This is a very exciting place to study. So do check out what we've got on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And Anna Greta, would you like to share what it is we're going to be talking about today? Such an important topic, a topic that is so central to the conversations we've been having in this mini-series around care and something that I know is very close to your heart. Absolutely. Sharon, I'm, I'm very excited about today's discussion. I think we've got some some great issues to, to disentangle. I'm sure listeners appreciate that since 2020, health policymaking has been in the spotlight like it's never been before, With us, as Australian governments scrambled to deal with a novel global pandemic from COVID-19. Through the initial phases of the pandemic, our senior health advisors, those chief medical officers, the deputy chief medical officers, the, the state chief medical officers, became central to our lives and how we lived them. Our personal decision-making and the decisions of all level of government pivoted to protect our health and the lives of those around us, guided and that, and that strategy of protecting and preserving life and reducing the risk of infection has guided so much of the policy framework of the last two years. The strain on Australia's health system has been profound during the COVID-19 pandemic. From primary care, chronic disease management, urgent hospital treatment, all parts of the system have been sorely tested. And as we've emerged from COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, the health system is continuing to experience immense, immense strain and stress, with several prominent leaders recently calling for major structural reform to address the challenges, perhaps even a change that's needed to save the health system. 
Health is central to the theme of care that we've been discussing in recent weeks on the pod, and with the federal election campaign about to enter its final week, it's an important time to reflect on both the events of recent years and to look forward to what we want the future of healthcare to look like in the Australian context. So to talk through these issues, we've got two wonderful guests joining us for the show. Sharon, would you like to introduce them? I would love to, Anna Greta. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You know, across this mini-series, we've talked about uh, what Millie Rooney describes as the the infrastructure of care, what John Falzon described as the architecture of care. And of course, that's both informal and formal. And in this conversation today, I think we're, we're going to go to some of the critical issues of what we need to do around the formal infrastructure or architecture of care through the healthcare system. And we do have two amazing guests joining us. We have Kylie Walcock. Kylie is Acting CEO of the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, which is Australia's national peak body for public and not-for-profit hospitals and healthcare providers. Kylie is also a visiting fellow at the Queensland University of Technology's Faculty of Health, and she's worked in the health sector for over 20 years, starting her career as a pharmacist before moving her focus onto the health workforce development and service implementation. Kylie, welcome. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thanks, Sharon. We also have with us today James Trower. James is Associate Professor and Head of the Epidemiological Modelling Unit at Monash University's School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine. James's research focuses on issues of tuberculosis epidemiology and control, and much more recently, he's been working on the COVID-19 pandemic. His research unit works closely with international organisations, including the World Health Organisation, as well as a range of Australian government departments. James is also a practising physician in Victoria. James, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you both with us today talking about health and particularly thinking about the healthcare sector in light of the last couple of years and, and the challenges that might lie ahead. I thought we might start today's discussion by reflecting on the last couple of years. I'd love to hear from both of you how you think it, how our healthcare sector has coped and the quality of care that it's been able to deliver for people who've needed it, particularly through the pandemic. James, would you like to start? Sure. I mean, it's it's a tricky one to address because I think the healthcare system has been stressed and it has been stressed for some time and it's stressed now. And, you know, I don't envy any of the people who are working in healthcare at the moment. And I, I do a little bit of clinical work, and uh, but I don't really get to appreciate the full level of stress that people are going through. However, I think if you look at the global picture, if you compare to what happened in you know, in Delhi during their Delta wave, if you look at Indonesia or Malaysia or a range of countries around the world and the level of, the level of, I mean, you can't even really call it stress, like the health systems collapsed in a lot of countries. They just were not able to cope with the volume of cases that they had. They weren't able to provide basic supportive care to a significant portion of patients who needed it. Um, so in that, from that perspective, I think, you know, we've, I guess we can discuss whether it was good luck or good management, but we have not ended up in the situations that other countries have. Absolutely. So, Kylie, what are your thoughts on on how the health system has survived the last couple of years? Yeah, I think um, that what we have observed really is that the health system is not really structured and managed in a, in a way that 
um, will necessarily be able to respond quickly to to crises such as this um, and that really it's been on the, the back of our, our workforce who who have actually pulled together to to actually deliver the care that people were needed to the best that they could. Um, and so it's really an opportunity that we should be reflecting on to to restructure and re um, I guess regroup to to develop this, the health system in a way that, that will be able to respond, not just in terms of these crises, but to the different conditions that we, you know, we're seeing that people have now and, and um, the different ways that we can provide care. Uh, we really need to leverage these so that um, we can be more adaptable. Mm. So, so we've got through because we've got such an extraordinary workforce of people who care about the service that they're de- delivering. Um, so, almost by accident, rather than certainly by design, some significant challenges that are ahead. Yes, I'd gr- I'd agree with that. I really do think that you know the the workforce took on the burden. James, you've recently written a terrific piece um, for policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to that piece in the show notes for today. And in that piece, you spoke about Australia's shift from managing COVID-19 as a pandemic to an endemic approach. Can you talk us through the epidemiological rationale for for that shift and, and what it means? And with Australia currently experiencing I think it's between 30 and 40 deaths a day from from COVID. Has this shift been the right approach? Yeah, well, I think as an epidemiologist, as we were leading up to seeing big waves of infection the way we did with Delta and then subsequently with Omicron as well, I was really, as hard as I possibly could, given the media exposure that I had, I was really trying to plug the idea that we had to get people vaccinated before these huge waves of infection hit. And I mean, that was particularly concerning for Delta and we were scrambling to get vaccination coverage up to decent levels as Delta was threatening to enter the country. And like I mentioned, with these other countries that, you know, they weren't able to hold those epidemics off until Delta hit, that was a disaster. And we did avert that disaster. Again, we can talk about good luck and good management, but we did just about be able to hold it off until we'd achieved good vaccination coverage. So so I was really plugging for um, restrictions to be maintained in place, you know, really keep on going with things like test trace, isolate quarantine, all of the other public health restrictions, uh, density limits on hospitality, all of the other things that we were putting in place. Well, most of the other things we were putting in place, I was really plugging to keep keep going until we achieve that good coverage. And I I think the flip side of that is that now that we have got good coverage, we really do have a responsibility to get let people get back to normal and rely on the immunity that we've developed as a population in Australia to protect us against these huge waves and uh, uh, and the potential to overwhelm health systems. And that's a very, very different approach. I think I think that's sort of that initial strategy that we put in place, the sort of COVID zero approach with lots of lockdowns, that was an emergency response. I think we're sort of through that process now. We have to, the immunity is never perfect and there's always ways to improve it, but we have to rely on that immunity and optimise that immunity, I think, going forward. James, in that policy forum piece, you do talk about one possible wildcard, which is the emergence of a new variant that brings, you know, greater challenges, particularly if if we see the number of deaths rising as a consequence of that. Is Australia adequately prepared 
for this if it does happen? I mean, to some extent, you can never be adequately prepared. I guess if you think about, yeah, you think, think about a new variant, but also there are other emerging infectious diseases that are just terrifying, like MERS, which has established short transmission chains in humans and has this incredibly high case fatality rate, many fold higher than what COVID has, has had. So you, you can imagine these incredibly severe viruses that would cause absolute disasters in like beyond what we've seen with COVID across the world. Um, and so, yeah, I think we really do uh, have to have to sort of bear that in mind and have an approach and put a lot of things in place in case there is a new variant or in case there's a new emerging infectious disease because we've seen these pandemics now come through every few years over the last couple of decades. Like we had, of course, you know, SARS in 2003 was not a pandemic, but it was a it was a major concern. And then we had a pandemic in 2009 and we've had another one more, more recently and there was HIV before that. So, um, yeah, I guess we, I think we really need to put in place these sustainable measures that we can rely on in the future. And they include things like building ventilation and, and really improving the robustness of our health system to cope with crises, um, which I think is something that Kylie started to talk about um, that I think are just really critically important. I think Australia's national biosecurity strategy was just recently updated or certainly discussions around that have been taking place over the last six months or so. James, should we have confidence that we've got adequate surveillance and investment both for looking for new uh, variants of the coronavirus and or other infectious pathogens that, that can take on a pandemic like we've seen previously or potentially worse? Have we invested in that infrastructure? Uh, again, it depends who you compare us to. I guess compared to a lot of countries, we're obviously in a very uh, – we've got a, a luxury of a lot better systems in a lot of these areas than a lot of other countries do. But compared to what we could have, I think we really have not been investing adequately in health at a national level for a number of years. And, I, yeah, as mentioned, other people on this call know more about that than I do. But I guess as somebody working in medical research, I particularly see it for medical research. Like we've had a – a real marked underinvestment, in, in fact, in research generally and in medical research in particular, um, and and we don't, I think, have enough coordination at the policy at the at the national level. Um, for example, we don't have a national CDC in Australia, and I guess, like having got through this emergency phase of the response, there's so much more scope to be reporting in real time policy relevant figures like the presence of a new variant. We're not really doing that. We're not really reporting the proportion of cases properly that we're we're detecting and we're sequencing that are attributable to a new variant at the national level. So there's huge scope to improve, I think. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the health workforce. Uh, much of the health workforce in Australia has been working under extreme circumstances throughout the pandemic. In a Monash University survey recently of over 9,000 frontline health workers during the second COVID-19 wave in 2020, over half of the respondents at that time were experiencing anxiety and depression and over 70% were feeling burnt out. Kylie, how would you assess the well-being of Australia's healthcare workforce both now and over the last two years since COVID-19 arrived in Australia? Yeah, like I think, as you said, um, you know, the workforce is feeling burnt out, but and you know, when we know that they're they're leaving leaving the workforce, um, 
we also know that those though who are remaining are feeling that you know their reason for joining the workforce in their, originally was about providing you know high quality care, um, helping people achieve the outcomes that they wanted, um, and so. By having you know a, a compromised workforce, I guess that you are um, then compromising their own sort of values about their capacity to provide safe quality care. Um, so I think you know one of the real challenges that we'll have is is retaining the current workforce while you know, ensuring that their work does actually align with their values and 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 provide them with that um, purpose. And and so that will really mean addressing the working condition in which they're working. So the, the working conditions has come up significantly in the aged care discussion and, of course, aged care and healthcare are integrally related as we reflected on a recent episode of the pod. Um, and retention is already emerging as a, as a significant factor in our healthcare uh, sector uh, in the acute area. James, you've had some experience in terms of the, the clinical impact of COVID in, in the hospital environment. Do Kylie's observations and the, the results of that Monash survey match up with your experience as a practicing physician? <laughs> yeah, I was an investigator on that survey, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess as a practicing clinician, I don't do much clinical practice, but I, I guess I know a lot of people who do. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really important to feel supported by your hospital and your organisation that you work for and your government. And we've seen some signs of that. I think there's a few points along the way where, the health system, the health um, health workforces felt pretty let down. And I think in 2020, when we first faced that big wave of cases in Victoria, I think the lack of an acknowledgement that uh, COVID was airborne and the lack of investment in PPE for frontline health health workers, that, that was a bit of a, a sort of an early slap in the face that set a bit of a negative tone, I think, at the start. And then, yes, yeah, so I guess since then we've seen... We've seen like plenty of issues and problems, and I guess I guess we haven't probably the, since then. It's been particularly that the Commonwealth government we haven't seen uh, successful procurement of things like vaccines, which are not directly of benefit to the health workforce, I suppose. Except that you know they clearly achieve epidemic control, and so they they reduce the risk of you ending up in a crisis. So we had poor procurement procurement of that and then we had poor procurement of rats heading into our big omicron wave when what we desperately needed was rats and since then we've had procurement of treatments for covid that has not probably been quite as good at the national level as it could have been so i think i guess all the way through those sorts of things at, at the national and and at other levels as well have let have left people feeling a bit let down at times i think yeah I think, you know, for, for someone who's been watching this from the sidelines rather than, you know, being involved in the the healthcare professions, you know, one of the things that will stay with me from the past couple of years is some of the, the, the images and the interviews, particularly in 2020, but throughout with healthcare workers, you know, in, in the traditional media and on social media where people are just clearly, completely and utterly exhausted but still so incredibly committed to, to what it is that they're doing. And, Kylie, you you talked about um, people's reasons for coming into the profession, which is you know, so often to provide high-quality care. Um, and it makes me think of the conversation that Anna Greta just mentioned when we were talking with Kasia Bale recently about health care, about aged care, and she made the point that the, the conditions of work 
is what determines the the conditions and the nature of care. And so, Kylie, given the the current COVID nineteen management strategy. I'd really love to hear your thoughts on how we can look after healthcare workers so that they're not constantly stretched beyond their capacity and so that they're cared for in able to provide care to others. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really challenging, um, you know, because you can't just create a health workforce overnight. It's not as simple as just to say, well, let's just pay for a thousand more. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be a matter of having a, a strategy and having a plan that everyone can work towards. And I think there are there are things that we can be doing immediately um, across the sector um, to ensure there's that you know that start the the workforce well being is looked after. That you know things like preventing um, you know ensuring their safety, preventing violence, or that impact of violence that we see in some of the, um, the settings. Uh, we've talked about uh, retention. Um, and recruitment, and, and it requires being innovative. If we're, if we're losing um, senior staff members who have just decided, you know what, I was close to retirement anyway and I just don't want to do this anymore, you know, the option could be that they may be happy to come back in, in a supervisor or teaching type role because that's one of the great challenges is if we're losing our senior staff, you know, what happens with our junior staff. Um, and so they might be prepared to come back into roles like that um, provided they don't have to, you know, participate in a patient-facing role. I think what services will really need to recognise, though, that if they bring people back in, you know, when things are stretched, they can't just go and redeploy these people into the clinical roles um, because they will just say, well, you know, that's not what I signed up for and I'll leave. So we do have to be a little bit more, I guess, flexible in, in and, and um, respect, I guess, what roles people are willing to sign up for. Throughout the pandemic, we did see some other innovative ways of addressing um, our workforce well-being in terms of creative start staffing approaches. So, looking outside our clinical workforce, um, and, and James may be able to speak more to this one. But you know, the example that I hear um, and saw was you know the way that Alfred um, brought in PPE checkers, um, and they utilised the airline staff industry to to provide that that service within the hospital and you know they looked to the, that um, industry because they had a great experience with compliance with standards and safety they were they you know could work in a you know stressful environment while still being personable they you know wouldn't bow to say the the hierarchy within the hospital you know and could still influence compliance checks um, and quite equally between all people I think we also saw a lot of the technology solutions being picked up in terms of telehealth um, and, and how that could be used to support the workforce in, in continuing their role in care. But they were all quite sort of quickly implemented and, and I think we need to relook at, well, how do, what, what things worked and what things didn't and how do we um, shift the whole healthcare system to, to adopt more effectively and sustainably some of those uh, creative solutions that were brought in. I think that's a perfect point for us to take a quick break, but don't go away. We'll be back with Kylie Woolcock and James Trower in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So, listeners, welcome back. We're in the middle of a conversation about the Australian healthcare sector, uh, from general practice to emergency departments to hospitals to chronic disease management. The sector has been under extraordinary strain during it throughout the COVID pandemic, something that we've all been aware of, but in fact predates that. And I think uh, the COVID pandemic, as we've discussed in the first half of today's pod, has begun to show some of these extraordinary stresses and strains that exist within our healthcare sector. For the next part of our conversation with uh, James Trower and Kylie Woolcock, I wanted to turn our attention to the Australian federal election campaign, which at the time that we're recording is a little bit over a week away. One of the criticisms of the campaign so far has been uh, around the perceived lack of substantive policy debate really in anything. And there are some areas where there are policies that have been presented and particularly perhaps by some of the minor parties and by some of the independents. Um, but but the, the absence of policy in the debate has been notable. Um, I'd love to hear from both of you uh, without asking you to go through the dot point, point by point uh, parts of the, the, the policies that have been put forward. Well, how would you rate the quality of the policy debate on healthcare in the campaign so far? And how is this helping us to get closer to delivering the care that people need. Kylie, would you like to start on that? Thanks, Anna Greta. Um, yeah, I think what we're seeing and, and I, is we tend to get in election campaigns something that can be captured in a single sentence and I think the healthcare system is probably a little bit more complex than that. Um, so it is really challenging to get traction around, um, you know, the types of reform that is, that is needed um, in, in a lead-up to an election Um you know, I think that's that's probably the main thing we see in any announcements um, is is something that looks at um, part of the health system or a sector in in silos. When really we need to be thinking about how people are moving through the healthcare system to get the outcomes that they need, and, and building the system from that perspective, um, rather than you know from the perspective of a hospital or a practice or a particular provider. Yeah. So can you hear any debate along those lines in, in the, the election campaign that, as you might have been following it or perhaps you're choosing not to follow it? That's a perfectly reasonable choice. No, and I, think, I mean, it's not just this election, um, uh, lead up to this election, but state elections are, are similar that, um, you know, if we look at, you know, one of the, I guess, issues that is being raised a lot is around ambulance ramping or hospital access block and, um, and, and the easy answer is to say more ambos or more, um, more emergency or um, care when um, even when you, you hear the College of Emergency Medicine talk about, you know, what is needed, it's actually we need more primary care, uh, we need aged care, we need um, mental health care to, to prevent um, presentations to the hospital. It's not about just more emergency care. So really thinking about that, you know, how are people arriving at the healthcare system and addressing sort of more upstream, um, that, that's really what we need. 
Absolutely. James, it might be a good point to bring you in here. Um, we, some of us regard the hospital system as like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Um, <laughs> we can intervene in a public health sector uh, intervention in a way that prevents disease and reduces the likelihood of hospitalisation. What are your thoughts on, on the healthcare debate in, in the election as it stands? And, and are we going to find uh, the sorts of solutions that might be beneficial for, our, for the health and wellbeing of our population through this debate? Well, yeah, I think you were right in the introduction in that, I mean, you sort of said it was absent. I guess we'd have to be a little bit cautious there. Like there has been obviously some debate about it and we've talked about reducing the co-payments on on, uh, Medicare items. And then there's recently been, I guess in my state of Victoria, there's been this announcement recently that there'll be a major investment in the components of the health system that the state government's responsible for down here that... Uh, that they're going to sort of, I guess, budget for in the new budget and take to the state election later this year. Um, so it's not completely absent, but it could be just, yeah, it is. it has been extremely disappointing that a pandemic of this magnitude has not stimulated a huge amount of debate about how we could be doing healthcare better in Australia and, and highlights it because it's, it's so clearly highlighted the shortcomings of our system. And we sh- it's, if now is not the time to think of big visionary plans for healthcare, then I don't know when will be. Um, and I guess, like having mentioned the state versus Commonwealth divide, I think uh, that's been one of the biggest issues in, in healthcare. And it's, I guess it's an opportunity to think about getting stuff like that sorted out. Like how do we actually have a, a less disjointed health system that is not, that doesn't have all these sort of, uh, joints between where the state and the federal governments have responsibility and how do we focus more on public health and preventive care. Um, public health public health has been very much left up to state governments and some have invested more in it than others, like to have a public health workforce in particular. And I think that's that's been seen that with the, with the pandemic that states that have invested less in their public health workforce and have had less capacity to do things like contact tracing have fared worse in some ways than the than the states that have invested more historically. Kylie, through your organisation, the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, you've called for a, a whole of workforce strategy for healthcare that delivers the, the kinds of care that Australians need. Can you talk us through what that whole of workforce strategy might look like? Yeah, I think... What we, we do tend to do is build strategies around professions and they tend to be medical and nursing and we think about, you know, the projections are about the numbers and the distribution of the, those workforces they currently exist. I think we need to be thinking much more broadly in terms of, you know, what are the what's the health care that people and communities need and then looking to, well, how, what are the skill sets that are needed to provide those care um, and how do we develop a model to care around that um, and build the workforce from that perspective? And that will include both the clinical and the non-clinical workforce. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, increasingly there'll be support for te- technology in, in the provision of care. Uh, and that will require a, a different workforce uh, of people who can support people in using that technology. Uh, we'll see, you know, clinicians as well will also need to, to be um, supported to, you know, analyse data and look at how they can drive improved care based on the data that's available to them. Uh, increasingly, 
you know, the, the types of data that, that patients will be using and have access to, whether it's through monitoring their own health, how does that build into the care that's provided? So there will be a very different workforce. And if we don't start thinking about, you know, the health workforce as a whole, we'll continue just to push sort of siloed care pathways ahead um, and, and it won't serve the needs of people in the communities. Kylie, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on where we need to start to to begin to put that kind of strategy in place. And also, as we start to think about those shifts and the different types of professionals that might be in the healthcare workforce into the future, how we ensure that within those changes, we maintain a, a, a focus on the patient, on the people who are receiving care within all of that. You know, often as as we start to think more about the use of data um, and we, we move to that kind of analysis, you know, the human beings that are behind the data can be lost. So how do we how do we make sure that we keep a focus on the care of people as we think about those transitions? So I think data will be critical to that. Um, we, you know, we collect an enormous amount of data across our system, and uh, but often we're counting, you know, processes and activity. And um, increasingly, though, we're you know we're hearing about patient reported outcome measures and patient reported experience measures, but really drilling that down to outcomes that matter to to the person that's in front of you, um, and, and what it is that they want to achieve in their care, and and really then building outwards, I guess, um, from that perspective to look at, well, how do we achieve those outcomes in a way that's sustainable for the system? Because we do have to recognise that it's not ever going to be an unlimited bucket of money that we can draw on. So I think, you know, you're absolutely right that we do need to start with the data. And, um, but, you know, also we need, you know, from a, I guess, an immediate term perspective, it is about that well-being element because, you know, how do you reform with a workforce who's exhausted? But I think if we, you know, can um, align that um, intrinsic motivation of healthcare workers around, you know, patient goals and and shifting the care and and seeing the, the improvements, you know, patient by patient or population segment by segment, and I think that's where we really see a value-based healthcare models can um can can provide both what's best for patients and communities but also what's best for the workforce um, by aligning those goals. Yeah, um, Kyla, you and I have spent some time uh, talking about value-based healthcare. I've been tremendously keen to learn from AAHA and from some of the international partners we have uh, who are working on on it as a framework, and it does. It shifts our perspective from organising healthcare workers in time and place to really thinking about how we deliver a healthcare service which is focused on, on the sorts of things that people, individual patients and their communities might want and might value. Um, and it is, it's a framework shift, it's a paradigm shift in terms of the healthcare sector. And it gets me thinking, it came up as a topic of conversation at a conference that I was at just recently from the Choosing Wisely organisation. It's a, an organisation that's under the National Prescribing Service, uh, an area of the Department of Health, which in fact lost its funding in the most recent uh, federal government budget. And this, this Choosing Wisely strategy focuses on the areas of healthcare uh, that are much more common than one would expect, where we're delivering either low-value or no-value healthcare. And some of the estimates in the Australian context is that, that some of the healthcare that's delivered in our healthcare sector 
may not may not offer much improvement to either quality of life or life expectancy for the patients who are receiving treatment. And the estimates of the magnitude of that low value or no value healthcare is 25 or 30, even up to 40% of the healthcare that's delivered. And so as we're contending with a, a workforce population who are exhausted, who need need love and support, who need structure and reward from a healthcare sector, um, the elements of the health uh, industry that so many of us find rewarding is that caring side of things. It is the most remarkable opportunity for us to, to really look at the work that we're doing and to make sure that the work that we do clinically achieves goals for patients in their lives. It improves their quality of life or their life expectancy through those explicit discussions. James, you've called for renewed investment in in healthcare, in medical research, in air quality, in improved ventilation in order to reduce COVID-19, and there are a multitude of other advantages to looking at this as well. What can policymakers do to reduce the risks in the short term, but also in a way that's sustainable, uh, given that the virus uh, COVID-19 is here for the long term? And so perhaps thinking more broadly about the benefits of air quality as as a target within the health sector. How well are we doing that now and how much can we improve? Yes, so I think there are certainly things we can do to improve air quality, but probably not in the short term. I think uh, the sort of things that we can do in the short term include vaccination in particular. I mean, I think we, as I I mentioned, I think the main strategy that we have now is to rely for COVID control on population immunity and we have effective vaccines as much as these new variants do show some evidence of immune escape on the whole the vaccines have generally retained their protection um they're probably less protective against infection which means they're probably of lesser value in younger age groups and young adults and those sorts of groups so we really now need to focus on people with identifiable risk factors for severe outcomes to protect them from those those outcomes such as hospitalisation, intensive care, admission and death. Um, and so I think that's where our biggest bang for buck is now, getting third and fourth doses into people consistently and having targets for that and making sure that we've been round to aged care facilities and made sure every last person who wants to be vaccinated has received the dose that they're eligible for. I think that's what we can do in the short term. And then in the longer term, yeah, there are all these things that, will have uh, payoffs that extend beyond COVID. And so they are things like building ventilation and air quality. Um, Air quality, you know, like there's a lot of countries in the world that are way ahead of us in things like electric vehicles. Um, And I think, you know, we're seeing this huge change in cities of Europe where people are moving to electric modes of transport. That's going to mean that they just have less smoky cities and it's going to be more pleasant to walk around the street somewhere like Copenhagen than it is in Melbourne in 10 years from now. Um, And that's going to protect them against COVID to some extent, or it's going to protect them against the next emerging infectious disease that we have to deal with. And so there's a lot of things that are linked together there. And I think we can, we can advocate for together. Yes. uh, So it's an, and some of the listeners to the pod might be aware of the work that I do on climate change and health and the co-benefits of reducing our fossil fuel consumption in terms of human health in the immediate sense of decreasing things like vehicle emissions in cities and air pollution in cities are no doubt underestimated by a health service. And, and I think it's such an extraordinary opportunity to improve both the quality of life that we have now and our life expectancy in, in our communities in major centres. 
Kylie, I'd really like to know whether you think we've learnt the right lessons from the pandemic. I think listening to the two of you in this discussion, uh, that that I'm, I'm hearing we have a piecemeal approach to a whole series of different problems. Are we learning the right lessons? What sorts of things should we learn from our pandemic experience? Thanks, Anna Greta. I, I reflect on James talking about, you know, how critical it was to meet certain vaccination targets in terms of our response to COVID. And when I think about it from a workforce perspective, um, you know, I I think about, well, how did we have the workforce that was available to actually administer vaccination? And when you look at the history of that um, in Australia, um, that shift for pharmacists to actually take on a vaccination role, it... it in Australia, you know, after 20 years of international um, evidence and experience in, in pharmacists providing vaccination, um, once it got introduced in one state, it still took eight years for all states to allow pharmacists to administer them. You know, and it was up against a lot of pushback from um, stakeholders across the system. You know, had we not had that workforce available to us, you know, it would have been potentially very different circumstances um, through the pandemic. And then interestingly, though, you know, earlier this year, you know, towards um, we, we saw, you know, Victoria introduce a, a different model of um, training vaccinations, which was sort of more of a short course almost, where, you know, pharmacists were then allowed to supervise. And when you think about that resistance to different workforce models, it does make you think we need to have a mechanism where we can embrace the evidence and assure safety and quality in the care we provide, but but accept that, you know, we do need to continually evolve to to leverage technology, to leverage the different ways that we can provide care and, and the specific skills that are needed for to, you know, in order to do that. And it may mean, you know, people doing things a bit differently in the future. Um, but I think that's a really important thing for us to, to take away from this is that we do need to provide healthcare differently. It's really not going to be a case of business as usual. This has been such a, an important discussion um, and particularly as we are in the midst of an election campaign and we're beginning or we, we should at least be thinking forward to the kinds of policies we need in place into the future. Um, we are going to have to draw to a close now, but as we do wind up conversations, we always like to ask our, ask our guests, what is their number one piece of advice for policymakers? And so it would be great to draw this conversation to a close by asking each of you, what do we need to do in order to create a more caring health system into the future? Um, Kylie, would you like to lead off with your thoughts on that? Thanks, Sharon. I'd say I think we, you know, we can use the value-based healthcare framework to to, as a lens to look at all policies uh, in the healthcare system, it, it provides that mechanism to think about um, it from a person-centred perspective and to think about the, you know, their, their care pathway as its entirety um, rather than looking at it from the perspective of each sector or um, each provider or each you know, jurisdiction in isolation. So really about um, taking an approach that aligns everybody's interests and, and funds appropriately uh, to, to achieve the best outcomes for people. That's such an important piece of advice and it resonates with, with other conversations that we've had about how we provide care to people in the healthcare system but in aged care and across a range of other systems as well. James, what's the number one piece of advice that you would give to policymakers in, in creating a more caring healthcare system? 
Yeah, well, I think given we're coming up to an election, we've just had a one in a hundred year pandemic. I think it's think big. I think people are ready for it now. I mean, I could be wrong on that, but I just think if it's not the time to reform the healthcare system and sort out problems, I mean, I guess I just gave one example, which is this state federal divide that we've been struggling with for years and years and years. If it's not the time to sort that out now, it never will be. It probably isn't. They probably won't work on this, I guess, in the next term of whoever wins government. But I just, you know, if it if it isn't sorted out in the next in the next few years, it probably will be something that curses us forever, I would think. Uh, James, I, I love that. I mean, think big, think visionary, I think is the advice that we really need at the moment. And I, I've said this so many times on the pod, but I'll say it again. Um, there have been so many tragedies around the COVID-19 pandemic, but it would be a great tragedy if we don't take this moment to stop, to reflect, to think about what we've learned and to think about what we need to do differently because we really do have an opportunity that we may not have again. So I I think that's a very powerful piece of advice and one that I would absolutely endorse. We will need to, to, to close this conversation now, but James Trower, Kylie Wilcock, thank you so much. This has been such an important conversation, so much food for thought and such good advice for our policymakers and politicians as we head towards an election. Thank you both. Thanks. Thank you. Under Greta, that was a, a terrific conversation. It was such an important conversation, I think, to have um, at this point in time as we're leading up to an election, we're thinking about what the future of Australia will be post-election, but also as we move beyond the, the lockdown phases of, of COVID-19. And I kept thinking as, as Kylie and James were talking about the conversation we had with Diane Gibson and Kasia Bale, you know, and similar kinds of issues coming up about the way we need to think differently. We need to think differently about the, the workforce in healthcare as in aged care. Um, and, you know, I, it kept occurring to me again and again, Anna Greta, we need to put care at the centre. You know, we talk about healthcare, but the the care part of it is often lost, but we need to make it central. But I know, you know, this is central to all of your work. What what were your thoughts on that conversation? No, I I agree with everything that you've said, Sharon. It is such an important discussion and it does seem extraordinary that we've spent the last three years really, starting from the bushfire smoke and and the, the devastation of Black Summer through then into a global pandemic where the health and well-being of, of our society has been a dominant factor in the decision-making for almost all of us in our lives, whether we can work and how we can work, how we're caring for family, whether our children are going to school, whether our, our, our elderly are protected and, and uh, safe in face of a, a really nasty infection. And so health has been the dominant driver for many of us in our lives over the last few years, and yet it's really missing in action in terms of the, the election debate and missing in action in terms of detailed policy discussion. And I think both of the guests today offered us some wonderful insights, and particularly I am a fan of the value-based healthcare model that's that's purported by AHA as a really significant shift in how healthcare is organised, and, and it really is a framework that, that puts care at the centre. 
So a really important discussion as we move to the election. And again, drawing back on the conversation we had in the live pod last week with our Democracy Sausage colleagues, um, how do we encourage, we've got wonderful solutions from a policy framework perspective in a healthcare sector that is really struggling. Uh, how do we make that happen? How can we translate that through such a messy political environment? I heard the uh, current president of the Australian College of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Claire Skinner, on, on radio this week calling for deep systemic change. And she's she's an experienced emergency physician who's dealing with the significant problems with overcrowding and patients waiting for unprecedented and unacceptable periods of time in emergency department. And she's not calling for more money into emergency. She's calling for a significant structural change for healthcare. Um, and I think we really need to listen to the words of wisdom that are around in, in both the cries for help from the system and the extraordinary opportunity, again, to change uh, in, in light of the, the experiences we've had. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the things that we keep hearing when we're, we're talking to people around a range of issues, uh, particularly as they relate to, to care and to ensuring that we, we prioritise valuing care, is the need for structural change. You know, we desperately need deeper thinking. We need bigger visions. You know, James's last comment about think big, I think is just so fundamentally important because we do need to think about where things are going wrong structurally and systemically and how we make those changes. And Anna Greta, we've said this again and again, um, and I think it's true in relation to, the, to, to this issue around um, healthcare. We have major challenges, but we also have solutions available to us. We have pathways forward. We just need to grasp them and we need to move beyond the toxic politics that prevents us from thinking about what those solutions are. You know, we, we have an opportunity to do that. And I hope these conversations that we have through the pod help to show what those solutions are and what the pathways forward might be, um, because they are there. We just need to grasp them. And, and you know, as I think about what you've just said, what James and Kylie has just said, I, I also just want to take a moment to, to do a shout out, to say thank you so much to all of those people who were working across the health se sector and have done so much to keep Australians safe and healthy over the last couple of years at often a great personal cost. So, mm. you know, a heartfelt thank you to all of those people. Mm. Absolutely. And Anna Greta, I'm, I'm just going to, to, to tantalise people a little bit. We have next week what I think is going to be a really fascinating conversation. We're shifting gears a little bit. We are moving away from some of the, the very practical issues and solutions that we've been talking about over the past few episodes of this mini-series, and we're going to do some of that really visionary thinking um, with a, a really remarkable scholar. Perhaps we won't reveal just yet who, who it is, but it is going to be a fascinating conversation next week. So I'm very excited about that. So am I, Sharon. You've done an extraordinary amount of work to make this happen and I'm so much looking forward to next week's chat. Yes. It should be a great conversation. So do join us. We'll leave a link to the publications we've discussed in the show notes and also a reminder, as Anna Greta said at the beginning, that tickets for the final Democracy Sausage Live show on Wednesday the 18th of May will be in the show notes as well.
So if you're in Canberra, please do go along to that and join Anna Greta in tweeting so I can hear what's going on from a distance. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We love to hear your comments. We love to hear your feedback. And thank you to people who put questions um, for the live pod last week into our Facebook and through other social media. If you would like to, please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or you can email us on podcast at policyforum.net. You can also join our Facebook group. If you type a Policy Forum pod into the search bar, you'll find us there on Facebook. But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. 